Today is exciting because we are starting a new series, the second series of the semester. It is called The Elephant in the Room. And the reason it's called that is we're going to spend the next four weeks and we're going, to, we're going to be discussing topics that are kind of all around us at Georgetown, topics that we're confronted with daily, but maybe topics that are often hidden, topics that we don't like to talk about. So a couple things that we have going on um, these next four weeks. We have Jessie Ford making her preaching debut, talking about the culture of busyness on campus. So that'll be fun. I'll be back preaching next week, talking about technology and our souls. Another hot topic issue. And then Reverend Brandon Harris from Protestant Ministries, he is going to kind of talk about why do all of these things matter? Why is it important that we live differently here at Georgetown? So a lot of really cool things coming up. As part of this series, we're doing a new challenge here at Open Table for the next four weeks. And that challenge includes putting your cell phones in the middle on the plates there and attempting, when at all possible, not to use the words class or busy or work because I feel like it's really easy to make that um, all we ever talk about. Um, still important things, but I think it'll be a good challenge to when we enter into this space to kind of connect with people on maybe a different level. So you can use your phones when you're texting in questions. That was the little caveat to that. But actually, next, starting next week, we're going to have you write in your questions and then pass it off uh, to Mary over there. But tonight, y'all will be texting in your questions to me. So my phone number will be up on the screen when we start. And that's because tonight, uh, we're going to have a panel discussion talking about issues of mental health as they pertain to us at Georgetown. So I'm going to invite our panelists up to come speak, and then I will give them further introduction. But can we please welcome John Rice and Chaplain Olivia Lane? So today, uh, the topic of our panel is going to be um, on a couple of different things, but all surrounding this idea of mental health. So how do we as a church respond to issues of mental health? How do we as a community in Chi Alpha respond to these things? Or maybe you're here today and you're thinking, I feel like I'm doing all the right things. I feel like I'm in the right relationships. I feel like I'm connecting with God, but something still seems amiss. You feel like you're doing the right things and you're still struggling with anxiety or depression or a multitude of uh, mental illnesses that you can have. I hope that this is a time where you can text in any questions you might have um, about how we as Christians navigate these issues. And if you're interested, my friend Blaine Young, he has a sermon um, where he talks about sort of developing a theological framework around mental health, and he uses a lot of his uh, personal testimony in that. So if you're interested afterwards, I'd love to send that link to you. I'll quote him a few times tonight. But um, so text in your questions. If you see me on my phone, it's because I'm going through your questions, so not texting up here on the panel. But I would like to take some time and introduce our two panelists tonight. First, I'll start with Chaplain Olivia Lane. You may know her if you live in Arupe Hall. She would be your chaplain. She is an Oklahoma native. Do we have any Oklahomans? Yeah, there we go. Right front and center. Um, she earned her bachelor's degree from the University of Tulsa in music and vocal performance. And then she went to Princeton Theological Seminary. 
And it was there that she got a Master's of Divinity with an emphasis in medical ethics. And before she came to Georgetown, um, she spent three years in Durham, North Carolina. There we go, David. I was waiting for, one time I made a North Carolina comment in here and I paused and then David wasn't here. So then it was just an awkward silence. Not to call you out for missing open table or anything like that. Moving along, um, and she spent three years there, or she spent, yeah, she spent three years there working in neuroscience and psych psychiatric chaplaincy, in addition to running her own interior styling agency. So she's very, very accomplished. And then uh, the man next to me on my bored. right. I get bored. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. Um, John Rice, he earned his bachelor's degree in pastoral counseling from Central Bible College and a master's in human service counseling from Southwestern Assemblies of God University. He works as the director for residential ministry here at Georgetown and is also a chaplain if you're in the Village B townhouse area. Anybody? There we go. He's your chaplain. There you are. <laughs> but more affectionately, he is known as my Chi Alpha pastor. So that's how, that's how he'll always be to me. Um, but so yeah, thank you so much for coming out tonight. Um, my first question is for John, and I wanted to read some statistics from the National College Health Assessment. You guys may have begr begrudgingly filled out that survey at some point while you were here. But in this survey, in 2015, it says that nearly 59% of college students um, express feel, feeling overwhelming anxiety in the past year. And of the students surveyed, 36% felt so depressed it was difficult to function. How do you see this in your role on campus playing out at Georgetown? Does that seem accurate here? Yeah, well, oh, that's loud. Sorry, let's try that again. How's that work? Can you hear me now? Uh, so thank you, Bonnie, and thanks for that warm introduction. That's actually very kind. I feel a little bit better about myself after hearing all those <laughs> great things. I want to listen to that guy, whoever he is. Um, but it's, it's really an, an honor and a joy just to be back here, and, and thanks for the opportunity and, and to speak to you all. I, I, I will say this. Um, when it comes to... Uh, and there's a lot we're going to talk about tonight, but when it comes to what students face, spending the last seven years living on campus and getting to know students, getting to hear your stories, um, I have been overwhelmed with joy and my heart has been broken. I have seen students at their greatest moments of victory and success, and I've seen moments where students are at their lowest. And being able to accompany students through this journey has been the greatest privilege of my life. And it, that's, that's kind of why we do this, right, is because uh, we love you and we love hearing from you. Um, you know, you can look at the studies and see that overwhelmingly what students face on campus, especially here at Georgetown, uh, the top three are depression, anxiety, uh, and adjustment disorders. Uh, overwhelmingly, above anything else, depression, anxiety, and adjustment disorders, those are the things that students face from the statistics. But uh, you know that beyond just the statistics, you know that on the personal level, how it plays out, um, the reason it's an elephant in the room and the reason we don't use the words busy work and all that um, is because we've all felt that. And especially I feel for you at this time in the semester because typically what happens, this is what I see and so maybe, maybe you felt this way, is that everybody just kind of pushes to get to spring break. 
right? And there's this hope that, oh my God, there'll just be some relief, right? You finally get to spring break and you have a little bit of respite for a few days. And then you come back this week and you find out that all the problems you had right before spring break are there right in front of you and now you've just lost a week. Anybody else feel that way? Anybody feel anxious now that I've started talking? <laughs> Did, before I didn't, no, I, right. No, I, I, just, I say that to honor it because I know this time of the semester can be incredibly hard. And uh, so I, I think, yeah, in answer to your question, I think I answered your question, I, I think this has is, is played out in a, in a variety of different ways and I've seen this happen in students' lives. But I, I wanna say if I say nothing else tonight is that you're not alone in what you're feeling and what you're going through. Um, and the best thing you can be doing is to be here in community, uh, so. Yeah, my next question, follow up to that. Um, for those of us who are struggling with anxiety or depression or adjustment disorders or a multitude of things, is there any sort, like does the Bible provide any sort of framework for how we navigate those issues specifically as Christians? Um, Deal. Of course, the Bible provides a framework for this. <laughs> Look, um, I think one Nothing. of the most common themes in Scripture is that we live in a broken world, that we have the struggles and the challenges that come from being in the midst of sin. And anxiety and depression, these are, you know, outward manifestations of the fact that we live in a broken system. And it shouldn't surprise anyone that we struggle with this. But I think the whole framework of the Bible points toward a hope and a redemption that comes through the person of Jesus Christ. And that is where we can place our identity and realize that even if, as we experience depression or as we experience anxiety, this isn't something that we can pull ourselves out of, have the ability to pull ourselves out of, but rather have to be dependent on the person of Jesus and on the people who Jesus places in our lives to witness God's love to us. And I think that's a really powerful message that comes through scripture over and over again, is that we can't save ourselves. We can't solve these issues on our own, but it is through Jesus and through the manifestation of God's love in others that we are able to move through these times. Because they are, anxiety and depression, they are often cyclical things, and you do go through phases with them. And you may go through very, very dark periods. We talk about this a lot in theology as sort of a, a dark night of the soul. You go through these phases where things feel overwhelming and heavy and unbearable. And that's a time when you have to recognize our dependence on the person of Jesus Christ and on the redemptive love that is manifest in Jesus through, you know, his death and resurrection. So. You took Jesus as your answer, so I'll see if there's anything Sorry. left. Uh, Paul, Jesus. I, <laughs> no, I think, I think to you that in one thing when approaching Scripture, it can be really hard to get caught up in the language and, and read into the Bible what's not there. Because it was important, as I was reflecting, uh, preparing for tonight, I was thinking about how we read scriptures that use the word anxiety or anxious. Um, like when Paul says, be anxious for nothing, but in prayer and supplication, present your requests before God, and the peace of Christ with passions all understanding will guard your heart and mind. And we read that as if we can pray a simple prayer, and Jesus will relieve us from all anxiety. Um, and I think what's important to remember is that Paul was writing in a pre-scientific method world. He was not writing anti-scientific, it was pre-scientific. 
that, that hadn't been established yet. It was pre-mental health disorder terminology. And so when Paul says that, he's not talking about generalized anxiety disorder, um, but rather something that is much more common. He wasn't talking about a diagnosis, uh, but an experience of anxiety that, that all of us have. And so while the Bible does give us hope for that, and I think there is something incredibly valuable about bringing everything in prayer to God and allowing Christ's peace to overwhelm us, that doesn't mean that it's going to quickly solve all your problems. And, and that's not what the Bible's saying there. Um, and so there are real mental health issues, but you can't read into the Bible what's not there. Um, and and you've got to listen to it uh, as, as it was intended for them in, in the original audience, before you understand what it's meant for us in, in the here and now. So does that make sense? Good. I was just going to follow that up with, it's this kind of idea of an eternal perspective, and I think that's what you're sort of briefly touching on, is that it's not, it does give you hope, but it's not necessarily immediate relief, and I know that that's something a lot of people struggle with. Like, if I'm praying to God, if I'm doing all the right things, then why don't I feel better? Why, don't, why isn't this just taken from me? And that's a theme that's struggled with by you know, people throughout scripture, and we see it especially in the person of Paul as he struggles with his own thorn, and, you know, we don't know what that was, but it gives us a model for the fact that, you know, we do struggle, but it is in our struggles that the um, redemptive power of Christ is made known. And so, you know, we don't have an answer always for why we struggle or why we don't have the immediate pain taken away, but we do have an eternal perspective that's given to us. And that points us toward a place of being able to hope in the midst of extreme struggle and pain and hardship because these are very, very real things, like John said. Kind of going off of the character or the person of Paul, when he talks about um, this thorn in the flesh that he has and he prays that God would take it away and he doesn't, what kind of model does that serve for us as we're praying for things in our life, maybe for anxiety or depression, to be taken away and then seeing that um, maybe it seems like God's not listening or he's not doing that. How do we respond to those types of things? I'll just, and then you can, yeah. I, I think we forget the last half of that verse, but he says what God says to him is not that I'm not taking it away. He says my grace is sufficient. And I think it, we really understand what Paul is trying to get across there and the message that God gave to Paul is that the grace of Christ, the power of Christ, the, the peace of Christ, all that is in Christ is sufficient. And, and there is a struggle. There's a very reason, whether it's physical, whether it's mental, emotional, relational. Um, you know, these, these, some of the things you've learned about other aspects of your life translate to mental health, but somehow we feel it's different. Like, you know, we pray for God to heal our asthma or our allergies, but not our brain, because somehow that's not a part of our body. Uh, even though that doesn't make any sense at all. But I, I think the reality is that the, the lesson is, is the same. So when we allow the grace of Christ to be sufficient for us, for, when we allow it to be enough for us, no, it doesn't mean that the problem will disappear. It means that something more powerful than the problem will be in the room. And that we can rely on that in a way that, be, that is beyond just a binary of solving the problem or not. And, and, and I think more than anything else, and this is from my own mental health journey. What has helped me more than anything is the awareness that the promise of Christ, the promise of Christ is that he will always be with us. And that matters more than anything else. 
when we live with that understanding, that awareness that we are not alone in this, and that Christ is walking with us in the midst of the struggle, I mean, I think this is one of the things, I'm going to just real dovetail, but this is one of the things that I think is so powerful about the gospel that is, that is often overlooked and neglected even in other traditions, is that we don't have a God who simply gives us a soliloquy or a, a poem for why there's suffering in the world. We have a God, rather, who took on suffering who went through anguish. I mean, when, when we read the account of Jesus in Gethsemane and he's sweating drops of blood, that might be considered a mental health crisis, right? Like, we don't put it in those terms, but Christ experienced all of that. And I think to know that someone who understands the mental health struggle on the level that he did, the level he does, is with us, that gives us hope that even if we feel misunderstood by the rest of the world, that he understands us, right? Okay, yeah. No, that's, I mean, that's a lot of what I was hoping to say anyway. And this idea of Christ as one who has already suffered, who knows our suffering, is such a location of hope. And I love the idea that, you know, when we go through things, it's not with the knowledge that it's just going to be removed from us, but that Christ is actually with us in that, gives us this model for how we do relationship with one another as Christians. And I think that that's incredibly powerful and something that we often forget is that we need one another. That's part of why we're called to be the body of Christ. Not so that we can, you know, have a cool club that does cool things together and is all happy and beautiful and fun. It's because when you're really struggling, you need other people to help you through it. And it's this witness of faith and this witness of God's presence in the world when we walk alongside one another and show God's love, like, be, literally being the hands and feet of Jesus Christ in the world, that's such a powerful image of how to be in the midst of suffering and how to be in the midst of anxiety and depression. And I know that's dramatically shaped my ministry and John's ministry as well in the fact that we get to be here and we get to walk through these experiences with you guys. It's powerful. It witnesses God's love to me in ways that I can't even describe often um, and gives me hope. And, like, for example, my family is going through a really tough time right now. But over and over again, we've had students and faculty and staff reach out and offer encouragement and prayer and support. And to me, that's just a constant reminder of the fact that we serve a God who models what it means to suffer and what it means to suffer alongside one another. And there's so much beauty and redemption and hope in that. Um, so we got a lot of really great questions coming in. Um, so let me try to combine a few of them. Is that Facebook? <laughs> Live Just tweeting. kidding. Um, going off the topic of prayer, how do we, how do we, a couple of things in, in relation to prayer, how do we, or do we keep praying for somebody or for ourselves, even if we're not seeing results? Um, it may seem unhelpful to continue to pray for somebody to be healed of something when that person may feel really discouraged that it's not happening. So do we still always turn to prayer first? And what do we do when nothing seems to be happening with those prayers? How do we respond as a community? That makes sense. She was looking at you. <laughs> no, I will, I, mean, I think you said it earlier a little bit that Paul's model of continue to ask. It's, it's our job to ask. It's God's job to respond. 
And yeah, he may not respond the way we want or the way we hope, but it's our job to continue to ask and to allow God to speak into it the way he so chooses. I mean, if this isn't really a relationship, then you're not going to do this wrong. By, you know, it's not like, oh, you didn't ask a fourth time, and so now God won't grant your magical healing, right? It's, it, I think we persist. You know, it's, we have these examples in Scripture of the uh, persistent widow who is, her request was honored even because of her persistence, you know, but it isn't, it isn't just this idea that if you do it the magic way, I, you know, I often think about the different healings in the New Testament and how Jesus did just some crazy stuff. Like, you know, there were times when he spoke to somebody and they were healed. Okay, pretty cool. Then there are times he spit on them, which is not like standard practice. At least I hope not. And, but I, I think, I honestly, I think one of the reasons he did that was just to change things up so much enough that no one would try to repeat the pattern in the same way. Like, can you imagine if Jesus in the Gospels did the same healing method every time? We would set up shop and do the same, like, rote memory. You know, if it was the spitting clinic, you know, that, that was just how Jesus healed, then, oh, we're, like, let me just, I mean, this guy has a doctorate in loogies, and I, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, we would just try to repeat this pattern, and I think that we, we try to apply this to prayer, that if we, just, if we just say the right thing, we do the right thing, then God's going to listen to us. And it's really not about that at all. It's about l- saying to God and petitioning him, but letting him be the one to respond. Okay, I went off course. No, no, I, I think um, in all things with prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known before God. So what does it mean to pray and not feel like your prayer is being answered or not feel like, you know, you're seeing the results that you wanted, I think that that's something that we struggle with day in and day out because that's part of not understanding the cosmic plan, right? We are finite beings. We have no idea what this infinite plan looks like. And I think it's so helpful for me to think about the story of Job, which is often used as like this pinnacle of suffering and just suffer silently and you will get through it. But what I love about Job is that he's part of this wisdom literature narrative in which he doesn't deny God. He goes through the worst of, you know, possible circumstances. And then finally he's like, look, I'm fed up, God. This sucks. Get me out of here. I'm over it. We're done. I can't handle this anymore. And God says, let me show you the world. Let me show you the world from my perspective, through my eyes. And he doesn't solve Job's situation. But Job says, I can't fathom what it is that you're doing, what your plan is for the world, what you do is so far beyond my human comprehension. All I can do is praise you in my circumstances, even though they suck, and acknowledge that I don't understand your plan. I don't understand why the prayers haven't been answered in the way that I wanted them to be answered, but I will continue to praise you. And I think that's such a good reminder for us that we don't really have a concept of this cosmic plan And so our position in the world is what God has ordained and not what we have imagined it should be and have then requested and expect like some kind of little dime machine we're going to get a nice little ring pop out of. You know, that's not how it works. And so I think that it's good to be reminded by these um, narratives such as Job's narrative that, you know, God has a much bigger plan than we are capable of imagining. And we don't even know what tomorrow holds. You know, just because the prayer wasn't answered in the way that you wanted it to be answered in today doesn't mean that you can't have hope and you don't have a future because that's what we're promised, right? We're promised a future and a hope in the person of Christ. So.
Um, shifting a bit to what is our response just as friends or as small group leaders who maybe aren't struggling with this personally but know people who are. Um, to, name, to name a few things, I, I've had some conversations with very well-intentioned Christians who will say things like, I think this is a result of like unconfessed sin in your life, or have you tried praying about it? Like, just cast your anxieties onto Jesus and he'll give you rest, or, or you just need to choose joy. That's the important thing. Which none of those things are particularly helpful when you're struggling with this. So how do we avoid being those kinds of Christians, and how do we do things that are actually helpful for our friends that are suffering? Well, I think if you heard one of those things and you've ever said one of those things, then don't. <laughs> Please don't do that. That's terrible. That's not helpful at all. Um, so don't do that. But I, I was recently in spiritual direction with a person who was going through a really difficult uh, family situation and has been for some time that is not being and will not be resolved. And I think what was hardest as she started to share with me was the fact that there becomes this fatigue within the community that when she opens up and shares what she's going through, some of her friends are like, they won't say this, but what they're, the emotion they're giving is, oh, you're still dealing with that? Like, there's a time clock. Uh, when you open up to somebody, at first people are really empathetic. They're like, I mean, I really see where you're coming from. But then they hope that, like, within two or three times talking about it, then you're going to be done with that and you're going to move on. And I don't think that's real. Um, I think sometimes as small group leaders, you feel the pressure to be there for somebody and to help them solve their problem. And I just want to dispel that. You, you don't have to fix it because more often than not, what people want, even more than their problems being solved, is simply just to be understood just to be heard. And if you hear them out, if you, even if it's the fifth time, the sixth time, that's okay. And some things aren't so quickly resolved. You know? And so I, I think take the pressure off yourself, because I think that sometimes that's where it comes from. Take the pressure off yourself to fix it. Uh, and allow yourself, as Christ simply does, to be with that person. Um, because that can be the most healing uh, thing ever. When I, I mean, my first trial by fire when it comes to mental health crises was um, well, a month from now, 10 years ago on April 16th, 2007 when I was at Virginia Tech and uh, I was director of Chi Alpha there and uh, saw the worst, at that time, the worst shooting in, in our nation's history and there was nothing I had to offer those students. There were no pat answers, there were no quick fixes, there was nothing I could say to make it better. And so I sat with them, and I cried with them, and I prayed with them, and I hugged them. And I listened to them week after week, sometimes talking about what they were going through. And you know what? That helped. That helped, just listening to and being with somebody. Um, and sometimes even just being in there in the silence. So take the pressure off fixing it. Just be there with them. I think there are a lot of things that could be said about what we can do to help educate other people about what's helpful and not helpful in these kind of situations. And John's totally right, you know, be present. That is one of the most important and one of the easiest things that you can do is to literally be willing to sit with somebody, 
while they cry or while they go through something really tough and not have your own agenda. Just be willing to listen, be willing to love them and not try and solve the situation. And our human you know, proclivity is always to try and fix things. We want it to be better. We want it to be good or right, but that's not really how a lot of these issues work. We, we aren't capable of solving them. And so one of the things that you can do if you don't feel comfortable with just going and sitting with somebody in their silence or in grief or whatever is you can also educate yourself. This is super practical. You can educate yourself. You can do what we call in the pastoral counseling world, um, you can build yourself a toolbox, literally, of things that you can use to help um, people talk, if that's helpful, to offer you know, support of presence, to all sorts of different things. But I actually brought this to show you guys. It's um, through the, I don't know if you're familiar with the Stephen Ministries program. It's used in a lot of mainline churches um, to train people in how to be deacons or like pastoral ministers, lay ministers in the community. And this is a book that was written, it's entitled Don't Sing Songs to a Heavy Heart. And it's literally like very practical steps to relate to people who are in suffering. Um, and so simple things like there are a lot of good resources and a lot of people that are a lot smarter than I am who've written resources and done a lot of research on how to care for people in the midst of deep suffering and from a re religious perspective, how to use your faith to support others. And so I would really just recommend, like, look up a couple resources, read them, be familiar with helpful techniques, be familiar with what's not helpful, because there are definitely things that aren't helpful, and trying to gloss over someone's pain, you know, giving them a pat answer, um, trying to fix it, these are all things that have been proven to be unhelpful in those situations. But one of the things that caregivers or people who are, you know, in chronic situations, depression, uh, anxiety, illness, et cetera, have said is that what really helps is that knowing that people care, knowing that you are loved and that people are thinking of you, even if you've been going through this for months and months and months. And it's true, there's something called like caregiver fatigue. And reaching out over and over again can feel bothersome or tiresome, and it can also wear on you. So know how to take care of yourself in those situations so that you can be filled up enough to offer than love and support to others. Um, it's, yeah, it's not just like caring for another person, it's also caring for yourself so that you can then offer more to them. Yeah, and I would just say, add to that on the practical level, uh, we live here, right. and if, if you wanna talk, we'll, we'll talk. I set up a one-on-one -on -one in the back, right before service, <laughs> had my calendar and everything. Now it's on my table, on because I, uh, I was obedient. Um, That's what I like to hear. But seriously, and you have, there are 29 chaplains and Jesuits and residents. I know I'm biased. This is my plug. There are 29 chaplains okay. You're allowed. <laughs> and Jesuits and residents uh, who, who live next door and who have experience and training in this. If you want to talk through some of this, is this normal? Should I be concerned about this when my friend talks about this? Or what about myself? Or, or how do I help this person? Just come talk to us. Okay? I'm going to try, we'll see, to get through like six questions in the next 10 minutes. I don't think that that's going to happen, but we'll, there's a lot of good questions coming in. Um, so this one, I'm going to combine this question, even though they might not be related. Um, how can we be more observant and intentional to see signs from our friends who may be struggling but putting up a good front? Actually, I'm going to leave that question by itself. Oh, well. 
I mean, there are a lot of ways that you can be more observant, like put down your phone, okay? Um, that's a good Preach. one. Good job, guys. <laughs> like when you're hanging out with your friends and you look up and everybody's like, and then somebody laughs because you're all like looking at the same thing on your phone but not actually conversing with one another. I mean, some of it is just being sensitive to the fact that we all put up a good front, but we all go through crap. Pardon the expletive. Um, I have two kids, so I have to censor myself. Um, we all go through difficult things, and a great way to check in on that is if you're going through something difficult, consider the fact that someone close to you may also be going through someone, something difficult, and don't be afraid to ask. Like, how are you doing? And if they say, fine, be willing to follow up with, no, really, how are you doing? Because sometimes it's just that second approach that allows a person to know that you actually care, you actually want to hear what they have to say. You're not just, you know, using a customary nicety to get through the social awkwardness of, you know, whatever. Yeah, my Chi Alpha pastor would have said <laughs> that you should ask, how are you holding up? It's like it. I was gonna, you did beat me to it. You knew what I was. It's nice to see that th there's some things have stuck. Second uh, <laughs> it's good that. I will say this one piece of advice don't be in a hurry. You want to have a genuine conversation with somebody, don't be in a hurry. I started um, Michelle, my chaplaincy director, <laughs> back when I first came here. She told me that uh, a couple years ago, she started adding another 10 minutes to her commute across campus. Deliberately, because inevitably, it's a small campus, and you see, you, you're going to run into somebody. And when she was in a hurry, she never really had the time to really be present to people. And you will be shocked if you just add that extra 10 minutes walking across campus, and you keep your eyes open. Do it as a prayer exercise. You know, God, help me to see what you see. I can't tell you how many times I've met with a student who has been bawling their eyes out and they finish the meeting, they wipe their tears away, and then they go and sit next to you in class, act like everything's okay. But if you take the time to just pay attention, to notice. I was in Starbucks once and there was a girl um, who was sitting kind of a catty corner across the table who just started crying and then she would compose herself. And she would start crying. And I noticed this after, over my, my laptop. And this is my early years of Chi Alpha. And I, eventually, it just became obvious that she was really going through something. And so I reached over and I said, excuse me, I'm not a creep. <laughs> but I'm a chaplain here. Are, are you OK? Um, and she started to open up. And she told me her grandmother just passed away. And she found out right there in the Starbucks. I was able to minister to that girl. Um, she never came to Chi Alpha, never came to a chaplaincy event, and we only met maybe a couple times over the course of the next two years while she was still a student. But for me in that moment, that was all that mattered, was just simply being with her and caring for her. And if I was in a hurry, if I was working too much on my sermon, if I was whatever, I wouldn't have noticed this opportunity right in front of me to make a divine connection with somebody. So just whatever you can do, just quit being in a hurry. And yeah, put your phones down. I think that's such a healthy, I want to applaud your campus pastor tonight because I think that's such a healthy thing. I don't know what we used to do in elevators because as soon as we get in, it's like we're glued to, but seriously, pay attention to the people around you.
three more questions. Um, this is a great question, maybe a hard one. Um, but how do you focus on your faith and strengthening your faith when some of these illnesses, such as maybe eating disorders, kind of put an idol in your life before God? That's the question. I think I don't. This isn't a complete answer, so I'm going to start here. And maybe I, I, I think I reject the premise of the question. There's something about the word putting an idol in your life. That I don't, I don't fully get on board with, and I think that may be an oversimplification of the, the problem. I think that it is an overwhelming struggle that I don't fully understand, and I'm willing to own that. There's a lot I don't know about that, um, but I think when we superimpose biblical terms on mental illness, I think we do ourselves a disservice. Um, and I think there's a lot that the scientific community and the psychological community can teach us about what we struggle with, uh, that, that we can bring with our, our faith and our understanding of Christ's presence and Christ's healing with us. But man, if you're not only worried about a mental illness, but also a sin, that is a double whammy that's hard to come back from, right? So... I actually really I appreciate you saying that because I think that we are so ready to find people to help us with certain things and yet when it comes to especially things like mental health and things related to that eating disorders and um, you know identity disorders and these issues we don't feel comfortable asking for help with those and we don't even consider that maybe there's somebody that's specifically trained that can actually help us with that that's not going to be adverse to our faith. And I, I understand why a lot of people for many years have felt that psychiatry in general was, you know, adverse to their faith. But I think that that is something that happily is being rejected and people are understanding the importance of having help from people who are trained in these things. And that's not to say that spiritual counseling and, and pastoral care doesn't offer a lot to your faith end of things and that, that that's not just as uh, central to your sense of identity and to um, working through some of these things, but it's also not the only thing. You know, we are dealing with really real um, mental and psychological effects, and there are people that are specifically trained to deal with those mental and psychological effects that you can trust, want your best, um, and it's not something I think that's that's adverse to our to our um, Christian walk to seek that out in the same way that we seek out people to deal with, you know, a broken leg or to fix our sink. You know, there are people that do very specific things and that's so important for us. I just want to say, I'm sorry, I want to say one thing to that, to that question as well is I'm, I'm going to say my Brennan Manning quote because I always say it and I can't, it's not a John Rice talk unless I say this. Um, but just especially when it comes to some of these really difficult issues that persist and you feel like every time you come to God in prayer you feel like you failed, I just want to say again, God loves you exactly as you are, not as you should be. God loves you exactly as you are in your brokenness, in your incompleteness, in your pain, not as you should be. You, this idealized version of yourself, just let go of that. Um, quit trying to be um, your best self and just try to be your true self, who you, who you really are, and, and just accept who God has made you right now. Just remember that. God loves you exactly as you are, not as this idealized version of who you wish you were, okay? That's the person God loves. So, sermon over.
There's so many good questions. Um, how do, uh, what role does medicine play in all of this? A good one. An, an important role? That was a lot of questions. <laughs> nobody, nobody like, you know, nobody's like, should I take this uh, kidney medicine? Like, because nobody says that, but if it's for our brain, we're like, whoa. You know, I, I just, I completely, yeah. yeah this is the nice thing about not knowing who asked the question is I can be dismissive of it <laughs> and it not hurt your feelings, unless that was your question, in which case I apologize <laughs> profusely. Um, my friend Blaine Young would always say that if, uh, He's out playing a sport, which he shouldn't be doing, in his words. Um, breaks his arm. Yeah, he'd want you to, to pray for it, but he wouldn't just want you to sit there and, and wait for something to happen. He'd want you to, to call the ER and uh, get some help there. So I think it's a very similar. Um, okay, I lied. Two more questions, but short ones. Because um, it's so good. It's so good. Um, how, how do we avoid delegitimizing people suffering by saying things like I know how you feel or I felt that before but also what do we do if we if we feel like we have gone through those those things so there's a point in this where empathy is really important and where over empathizing is actually a problem because you haven't experienced exactly what another person is experiencing no matter what it is even if the circumstances are very very similar and so it is something to remind yourself that you don't know exactly what they're going through. You don't have all of the same, um, you know, factors at play in your life, family, you know, network, uh, support, etc. But if you feel really strongly that you can empathize with a person in this, just, you know, that's okay to approach, but approach it down the line. Don't start out with, like, I know exactly how you feel. I've been there, totally been there, done that. That's not why they're coming to you. They're not coming to you because they want it to be about you. Um, and what you do when you over-empathize with a person is that you make it about yourself. And that's, it can be really problematic for somebody if you make a situation about yourself immediately for them to be able to trust you when they really need help. Because they're coming to you because they need a listening ear often or because they don't know who else to turn to. And if you can't listen to someone else in that, then you probably want to direct them to someone who can. Sorry if that was harsh. <laughs> <laughs> um, though I guess this will be this will be the last question. Um, and by the way, so many good questions texted in. I'm really sorry we couldn't get to them all. Um, we have this thing that we say a lot in Chi Alpha. What God you might remember? Um, <laughs> what God does in you, He wants to do through you. How does that apply to the things that we struggle with? in the things that we face? How do we offer these things up to, for God's glory? I think I want to be really careful about how I say this because on the one hand, especially when it comes to um, something you've gone through, I think vulnerability can be incredibly powerful. And sharing what you've gone through um, can be healing for other people. I, I want to clarify, though, and say that I'm not saying share what you're going through. Right? I, I never, I rarely share, especially in a group setting like this or with people I'm mentoring and discipling, I never share what I'm going through. I'll share with what, I'm gone, what I've gone through because um, that can be really healing and helpful. But uh, again, like what Olivia was just saying, if, if it's what you're going through, it's so easy to make it about you and you actually end up trying to ask them for help instead of helping them yourself. That's exactly, that was your answer. I don't want to, but um, 
Yeah, just in the right context, with the support of your campus pastor and talking through this, being able to share your story can be incredibly powerful and healing. But make sure it's a story that at least this chapter is closed um, before you, you try to jump in there and help somebody else. I thank you for that, John. I mean, I think our lives are witness no matter what, and it's a good thing to ask ourselves what it is that we're witnessing to because people see our lives and the way that we choose to live them does impact what they think and feel about our faith. And I think that, like John said, it's sometimes not helpful to share exactly what you're going through when you're going through it. That doesn't mean that that's not going to be a story that is an important narrative. Um, in the future. One of the things, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Parker Palmer, but he's one of my favorite, uh, you know, writers. He's a contemplative and a Quaker, and he, um, he talks a lot about reframing, about reframing the way that our stories are told so that they can be better heard by other people. And one of the things that he talks about in reframing is this idea that um, a lot of the time we feel like God is pushing us down, like we're being forced into something that we don't want to be in, but it's helpful to think about the fact that maybe when we feel like we're being pushed down, we're actually being pushed onto solid ground, and that that solid ground is our identity in Christ. And it's not so much this idea that we're being pushed down into, you know, nothingness or we're being squashed, but we're actually being put onto a firm surface. And where we have been and what we've been struggling through is something that you know, was not God, was not, you know, of God, and was not part of this um, witness that we give to other people, but it is in our weakness that God's strength is made, you know, manifest, and so, I don't know, that's just one of those things, when you're sharing your story, recognize that you don't, you don't always know how your story is going to be heard by others, but that it can be used, and it can be used for great good, but also, Maybe not from the perspective that you had once thought. Thank you guys so much for joining us tonight. Can we show our appreciation? I just want to encourage you to, uh, we'll be around a little bit after the service. Um, if you have any uh, additional questions or want to set up a meeting, I'm sure they'd be, I didn't ask them, but I'm sure they'd be more than happy to do that. Um, as we get ready to transition into a time of worship, I just wanted to share a scripture, something that encourages me from the words of Paul. And he's writing this to the people in Corinthians, uh, in Corinth, in his second letter. In 2 Corinthians uh, 4:16, it says, uh, "Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away; yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day." For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary and what is unseen is eternal. And I think that circles back um, to how Olivia opened up tonight, and that this idea, uh, what theologians like to call that the kingdom of God is both now and now and that we see and we participate in the work that God is doing, but we also recognize that heaven is not fully here yet. There will always be these things that leave us to feel incomplete. 
So I just want to pray, say a quick prayer, and then we're going to go into a time of worship together. So you can sit, you can stand. I encourage you, uh, if you feel inclined, to ask somebody to pray for you. Uh, there'll be people in the back ready to pray, or people at your table, your small group leaders who would really love to pray for you as well. So I'm just going to say a quick prayer. Jesus, I thank you that you are a God who is with us. Thank you that we don't just live our lives for you, but we get to live our lives with you, God. And I thank you that you were a suffering Savior, God, that you know what it means to suffer. And you're, you're the only one who can say that, uh, that I know what you've been through, that I know what you're going through, because you do. And I just pray, Lord, that tonight you would give comfort to those who are afflicted, God. And I pray that you would give us that peace that Paul talks about, that peace that surpasses all understanding. And it's called that because, because we can't understand or we can't explain how we can have that kind of peace in our life, Lord. We just lift up all of these things and all of these words spoken tonight to you. In your name we pray.